Here's what we're going to do. Are you ready for another story? Because uh, we've been doing this series on parables. These are stories Jesus told. And uh, what, you've, what you've learned so far is that Jesus told short stories. And you're like, man, why can't other preachers be more like him? Uh, but uh, today you're going to get a little bit of a different kind of a story from Jesus. And it's a story you've heard before. And it's a story you think you understand. And I bet the Holy Spirit's going to blow your mind. Okay, so let's go to Luke chapter 15. We were there last week, uh, and we're going to revisit uh, Luke chapter 15, and we're going to pick it up in Luke 15, 11, I believe, and if I can find it, we'll start. Now, this is a longer story. You're used to these uh, two and three verse stories. This is going to be a half a chapter, so follow along as I read and um, see what the Lord shows you. Verse 11, and he said, <clears throat> a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving, him, giving anything to him. And when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and, he, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and, and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring about these, what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in, and his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, look. For so many years I've been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you've never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. And when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you've always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. He was lost and has been found. All right. This is a longer parable. 
This is different than the ones that we've been looking at so far. By Jesus' standards of storytelling, this is a long-winded story. Um, and it has a more complex plot than most of the parables. Even think about the ones we saw the last couple of weeks. There was a sheep that got lost, and a guy went and got the sheep and brought it back. End of story. There was a lady, lost a coin. She searched and found it and threw a party. End of story. But this has got some nuance to it. This has got several characters, and each character has got some nuance to his personality. And there's a lot going on here, and it takes place over a period of time. So it's a more complex story. But remember what we've been saying about interpreting Jesus' parables. First of all, they always have one point. Jesus is making a point, and we're going to dig in and try to figure out what that point is. And even when that point has a different impact on the different characters in the story because they live different lives, it's still one point. So we're going to find the point of this parable, and we're going to dig in. I got to tell you, probably my favorite parable. This is what I was thinking when I said, you know what, I should do a series on the parables because then I'll get to preach on this. Um, and I cannot wait to dig into it, but let's get some context first. Remember, we talked about this last week. Luke chapter 15, verse 1, the beginning of this chapter, tells us who the audience is, and that's important, so let's go, let's go back and look. Now, all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Remember this last week? That the, Jesus is speaking and these sinners just keep coming up. These people that everybody knows are wretched people. These are people that don't follow the rules. They don't keep the law. They're not religious. They're not faithful. They're just wretched people. And they just keep coming. And unlike the other Pharisees and the other rabbis and the other religious leaders of the day, Jesus doesn't offend them, embarrass them, or send them off. He keeps receiving them. And they're bothered by this, the Pharisees and the scribes. So we got these two sets of people that are in the original audience. First, the tax collectors and sinners who have no regard for the law or the expectations of polite society. They are messed up lives and they know they have messed up lives and they're fine with that. They're not trying to impress anybody. And then the second group is the Pharisees and the scribes. And the Pharisees and the scribes are the guys with the white robes. They're the guys with the impressive education. They're the guys with the following. They're the guys who get to sit in the good seats in the synagogue. They're the ones who stand up on the platform and teach. They're the ones who pray loudly in the public square. They're the ones who are so impressive to everyone. So there's these two groups of people. One is rule breakers and the other is rule followers. And they come together and they have to listen to the same stories. And maybe they'll find that both groups have something to learn. So, who was Jesus pointing his teaching at in Luke 15? Well, he's already told a couple of stories that touched the heart of group number one, the tax collectors and sinners, right? He already said, remember, that sheep wandered off on its own, and, and, and the shepherd went and got it. And, and they go, yeah, God loves the lost. And then there's this lost coin. You know, the coin is lost for a whole different reason. A coin is a victim of someone's carelessness, and and the woman went and found it. Yeah, God loves the lost. And, and if you're in group number one, and you think of yourself as a tax collector and a sinner, then you're probably digging these stories. 
And if you're in group number two, you're starting to get the point. You're like, yeah, we were grumbling. Why does he let these guys come? And I'm tr- he's trying to tell us God loves them too. Okay, we get it. But this next story is different. It is to encourage group one to return to the Lord. But if you are in group two, this story is meant to blow your mind. This story is meant to, to help you to see what you probably can't see without this story, right? So there's a lost sheep, there's a lost coin, there's a lost son. Sheep wandered off, the coin got lost because of victimization. And in this story of the prodigal son, there's actually two lost sons. So we have the one, the younger brother, and the younger brother is lost because of his rebellion. He's lost because he has no respect for the father. He's lost because he is following his appetite and doing his own thing, and he wants what he wants, and he ends up ruining his life because of it. He's lost. But there's an older brother in this story who is at least as lost as his younger brother because he thinks that keeping the rules somehow makes him worthy. And he's really confused. And so we're going to dig in and see how this works because this has been known forever as the story of the prodigal son. And I try to figure out where that name came from, who gave it that name. You would have thought it's in the text, but it's not. The word prodigal is nowhere in the text. Um, And you'd say, well, how did it become prodigal son? Well, because everybody knows prodigal means somebody who uh, rebels, somebody who runs away, somebody who lives a loose life, that's a prodigal. Even in our society today, you know, you talk to some parent and they tell you about how their college kid has just gone away and he's into drugs and he's into crime and he's not doing the right thing. And you go, well, he's your prodigal. We're going to pray that your prodigal will come back. And we think we know what that word prodigal means, but I actually looked it up. (laughs) Turns out it doesn't mean that at all. Prodigal means recklessly extravagant. So the son is prodigal in the sense that once he gets the money, he goes and blows it all extravagantly. That's what it means to be prodigal, to to be recklessly extravagant, to, to have spent everything. That's what it means to be a prodigal. And so we're going to discover today that these parables are not really about sheep or coins or younger brothers or older brothers. They're all about a God who loves with a reckless love. And that's why I've entitled this message, Prodigal God. That, I think, is a better title for this. And I would love to take credit for that, but I stole it right off the title of Tim Keller's book. Okay? So, um, but Tim Keller wrote this book called Prodigal God in which he points this out and he says, look, um, you know, this is about the extravagance of God, which is why I asked Ricky and the worship team, would you, would you make sure you include reckless love as a part of our set this week? Because I, I want us to be thinking carefully about the recklessness of God's love. And you just saved yourself several minutes because Pastor Ricky preached that whole section, so I can pass that up. But isn't it awesome to know that we have this God who is absolutely reckless, relentless, extravagant in the way he pours out grace upon us? That it's not like, well, there's a little bit for you and a little bit for you, but we've got to ration it out because it's got a lot of people that it needs to go around to. No, the grace of God just keeps flowing 
flowing and flowing and flowing like a river. It never seems to stop. Picture Niagara Falls and the water just keeps coming over. Do you think, my gosh, when does it end? Well, never. It just keeps going and going and going and going. And the reckless love of God is like that. That's why in John chapter 1, it talks about how, how Jesus came as a sign of God's grace upon grace. It's not just a little bit of grace and then live with that for the rest of your life. It's grace and 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 and it just keeps flowing. So let's think about these brothers. First of all, if you'll indulge me, I gotta say that my thought when I read this story was these guys are the stereotypical birth order examples, right? You have the firstborn who is the rule keeper, he does what's expected of him, he's very responsible, he takes care of things, you never have to worry about what's he gonna do the right thing. That's the firstborn, right? The firstborn is the parent pleaser, the rule follower, the achiever, the straight A student, the status quo keeper. Now, you may be going, not in our family, Well, that may be, you might be the exception, but typically that's how this works. Firstborn tends to be the responsible one. And the lastborn, and I don't care if it's a family of two children or a family of 42 children, the lastborn is usually the party animal. And and the lastborn says, I am gonna go experience life myself. I need to experience it to learn it. I'm not gonna listen to the advice of these old fogies who don't know what they're talking about. I'm gonna go out, do my thing, sow my wild oats, learn my lessons my way. And this doesn't happen in every family, but that's sort of the common thing. The lastborn is the adventurous one, the one that moves away to the big city, the one that... um, that uh, is a trailblazer, the one that's a nonconformist. And this story is about both of those kinds of people. And it's ironic to think about this, but if we got to think about it in order to really understand the story. See, we think of Christianity as sort of the buttoned up, um, moral, religious system. You know, these are good people, the people who follow the rules and go to church and do the religious stuff. But the interesting thing is, Jesus wasn't like that at all. In fact, I'm pretty sure if we really had, you know all the pictures of Jesus that we see when we think, oh, he actually looked like that? We don't know what he looked like. I am pretty sure he had a nose ring for starters. I'm just telling you that. (laughs) This... Jesus was the guy that pushed the boundaries all the time, especially where religion was concerned. Jesus was the anti-rabbi. He wasn't like the other rabbis that they were used to. He was the one that was always challenging. Remember, he, his guys were walking along the road and they're by the wheat field and they're picking off the heads of wheat to eat and it happens to be the Sabbath and everybody is yo verily, verily freaking out, right? <laughs> and Jesus goes, you guys, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Take a chill pill. It's gonna be okay, right? And the, and the, and the Pharisees and the priests are just 
out of their mind about this because he keeps doing stuff like that. Jesus is seen as the guy who challenges religious establishment, not as part of the religious establishment. And the early church, same thing. The church in the first century, the church that we read about in the New Testament, the the Christians in those days were not the nice rule-following religious folks. In fact, they didn't do any of the religious stuff that everybody else did. There was no, the people said, well, if you're so religious, how come you're never in the temple? And they said, Jesus is our temple. And they said, well, if you're so religious, how come you're not doing the sacrifices? They said, Jesus is our sacrifice. So well, if you're so religious, where's your priests? I said, Jesus is our priest. And, and the rest of the world, not only the Jews, but the pagans of Rome as well, did not get it. And so literally, I don't know if you know this, but literally in the first century, Christians were known as atheists. They were considered the non-religious among the people because they thought it was about a relationship with the living God, not a bunch of religious um, hoops to jump through. So it's ironic to think about this, but Christianity was more of an anti-religion than it was a religion. And generally, religious people couldn't stand Jesus. Generally, religious people were appalled by Jesus. And generally, it was the sinful people who flocked to Jesus and couldn't get enough of being around him. And so there again, not exactly what you expect in the religious establishment. And so both groups approached Jesus that day. And both groups found themselves in his stories. And as you read the Gospels, you start to see a pattern. When Jesus is encountered by religious people, and sinful people in the same context, the sinful people stick around and the religious people can't stand it and they take off. And I could give you 50 examples, but this is just, you wanna do this in your quiet time this week, write down these passages and give you something to read this week, okay? Luke chapter seven, there's this story about this sinful woman. She's just described, how would you like it if that's the way you were described in the Bible? Not your name, not anything about you, you're the sinful woman. There's a sinful woman in Luke chapter seven and she comes in on this gathering of godly men. And so you have all these Pharisees and priests and rabbis gathered in this place and Jesus is there among them and this woman comes in in the midst of this. First of all, a woman is not welcome in this meeting. This is a different day and age. Secondly, she comes in and interrupts. <laughs> and now this blows our minds with our modern sensibilities, but in those days, if a woman entered a room full of men, it better be to serve something and leave. That was her uh, ex- accepted role, right? And she was to stay covered up. She would have her head covered, she would have her face covered, she would come in, she would drop off the food, she would pick up the dirty dishes, she would walk out. That's what was expected. This sinful woman comes in, the Bible says she lets her hair down, which is just an absolute sign of disrespect, and then she falls on her feet in front of Jesus, and she's weeping so hard over her sin that her tears are washing his feet, and she's pouring perfume on him, and she is drying her, his feet with her hair. 
And the men in the room are having a conniption. And they're going, how can you let her touch you? Don't you know what kind of woman this is? And in the end, it is that woman who is drawn into a relationship with Jesus. And it is those rule-following men who can't stand to be around him. You, you go to John chapter three, that famous chapter. Remember Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night and, and that what do I have to do to be saved? And Jesus talks about being born again and you have all this interaction with the Pharisees. And basically the Pharisees hear what he has to say and they're like, we can't stand it. Then you turn the page, you go to John chapter four and in John chapter four, he goes to Samaria a place where you would never expect to find a Jewish rabbi. And he goes to Samaria, and while he's crossing through Samaria, he meets this woman at the well who has become known as the woman at the well. And Jesus meets her there, and they have this um, encounter where Jesus talks to her, and she's amazed that he would even talk to me because not only am I a woman, not only am I a Samaritan, but I've had like a bajillion marriages, and everybody in this whole community has rejected me, and I have no friends, and nobody will talk to me because I'm considered the scum of the earth. And Jesus tells her about, about the kingdom of heaven, and uh, she enters into a relationship with Jesus while the Pharisees are running in every direction because they can't stand a guy who would do that. And we looked at this last week in Luke chapter 19. Remember, there's a big crowd and Jesus is trying to make his way through the street and Zacchaeus climbs up the tree, right? He's this terrible sinner. He's a tax collector. Everyone knows about him. Nobody wants anything to do with him. Nobody has any respect for him. He's made his money stealing from the people and there he is in a tree and Jesus doesn't even wait for Zacchaeus to call upon him. In fact, Jesus calls upon Zacchaeus and he calls him by name and he says, come down because I want to have dinner with you tonight. And they literally throw a party at Zacchaeus' house for all the tax collectors and all the crazy messed up people in the community. They come to the party and once again, the Pharisees freak out and they go, who is this guy? He must be a drunkard because he spends all his time with drunkards. He must be some sort of womanizer because he spends all his time with prostitutes. He must be some kind of a sinner because sinners just love to be around him. And his reputation is going in the toilet among the buttoned up religious types. But among the people who know their need, he is becoming a hero. And they're drawn to him again and again and again. And I just think it's interesting that um, in general, if you thought about the American church today, you would probably have to say that uh, our churches typically have the opposite effect that Jesus had. Like religious people move to a new community, what do they do? Look for a church. Go find a church. Got to be with the church. And then unbelievers don't want to darken the door of a church. And Jesus was just the opposite and you say, well, why is that? And I'll let you grapple with that question. But it's worth going, hmm, how come things are so different than they were with Jesus? Okay, what were we talking about? There's a story. Okay, Jesus told the story. He tells a story, and in this story, there is this younger brother, right? Now, uh, just let's summarize. We read the story. Let's summarize, okay? 
That's the younger brother, right? That's actually a picture of Ricky in high school if you haven't seen that before. But so that's the younger brother. The younger brother, um, it's so funny, this happened in the first service too. Like I'm not watching the slides and all, all of a sudden everybody laughs. I'm like, I didn't say anything funny. What was that about? Thought my fly was open or something. Okay, that's the younger brother. I try to come up with a picture of a guy that when you look at him, you know some stuff about him. You make some assumptions about him, right? This is a guy who is rebellious and he wants you to know it. And he goes to his father uh, and just completely, without any respect, goes to his father and says, look, I have had enough of being your son. I'm sick of being here. I'm sick of being with you. I'm sick of waiting for you to finally die so I could get your money. So how about this? Why don't you just give me my money now and I'll get out of here. Now you have to understand, uh, we know about two sons. So let's assume there's two sons in this story in Jesus' family. I am in the family in Jesus' story. There's two sons. So um, that means a third of the inheritance belongs to the youngest son because the oldest son gets two shares, okay? So the oldest son gets two-thirds, the youngest son gets a third, and we picture this, I don't know how you picture it, I picture it kind of like this, the guy comes to his dad and says, look, I want my money now, I'm out of here, and the dad gets his checkbook and writes him a check for his share, and off he goes. But that couldn't be how that happened, because that's not how money was done in those days. For him to collect his portion of the estate was a long, drawn-out process. His father would have had to sell property. His father would have had to sell equipment. He would have had to liquidate his wealth in order to make it possible for him to give wealth to his son. That's why that happens after you're dead, because it just gets passed on. But if it has to happen while you're alive, that cuts into your business. It cuts into your livelihood. It messes everything up. And it would take time. And this boy stays with it and stubbornly insists that this be done. And it's done. Now, he takes off and says that he spends it all in loose living. We find out some details about that loose living later when his brother says he wasted it all on prostitutes. Basically, it was wine, women, and song for this guy. He goes off to a faraway land where they don't know anything about the rules of the Torah, where they don't know anything about the standards of God, and they don't know anything about him or his reputation, and he goes and he just starts going to clubs and throwing out money. And he's buying Cristal for everybody and he's the guy that gets you into the club. He's the guy everybody wants to be with, right? And so he's got all these friends. And his friends are all around him every night. And every night his cell phone is just blowing up going, hey, where are we going tonight? Where are we going tonight? Because everybody knows he's picking up the check. And so he's got all these friends and he's having all these parties and he's having this great life um, until he wasn't. Because it says the famine came upon the land and he was out of money. And what was he supposed to do? So he got a job. What was he qualified to do? Nothing. So he became a hired man who went out into the fields and fed pigs. And don't miss the irony of that. These are Jewish people. And his job now is to raise pigs. And not only is he raising pigs, but he's living among them. Not only is he raising them and living among them, but he's giving them this slop and looking at the pail and going, I wish I could get away with eating some of this because I don't have anything to eat. 
And finally, when no one was giving him anything, it says, he finally came to the point where this light bulb went off above his head and he went, you know what? I should go home. He goes, I know that I can't expect my father to receive me back as a son, but who knows, maybe he'll treat me like a hired man. And that's important, that he's looking for a job as a hired man. He's not even asking to be a servant. They're two completely different levels. Servants actually live in the, in the place. Servants are a part of the clan. Servants are taken care of by the family. But a hired person is somebody who's passing through. You give them a job to do. You pay them and they're on their way. He's thinking, maybe I could just live in the village and I could be a hired person. And maybe, who knows, I could save up enough money to retire some of the debt that I owe my dad and who knows what could happen. I know I'm never going to be a son, but at least maybe I would be eating. And so he heads home. And as soon as he starts heading home, he starts rehearsing his speech. He's got a speech. He's going to have to make the speech. He gets one shot at this. He can't afford to mess this up. So he begins rehearsing his speech, and it begins with, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Please make me a hired man, Right? And as he comes over the hill, and he can see his father's ranch in the distance, he notices the strangest thing. There's a figure running toward him. And as it gets closer, he realizes that figure is his father. It had to be the weirdest thing he's ever seen. I guarantee you he's never seen his father run. That just wasn't done by grown men in those days. If you're the patriarch of the family, the little boys maybe run... Maybe the, maybe the young men run if they're competing in some sort of athletic endeavor or doing some hard work or something like that, but there would never be the patriarch of the family like pulling up his robes and doing this and trying to run. It would be humiliating and he would never do it. But he notices his father is running and he's running to meet him and he greets him and he throws his arms around him and he kisses him and imagine how shocked the son must have been. This is not what he expected. But he takes a deep breath, <clears throat> clears his throat, and says, um, I know I'm no longer to be called, uh, worthy to be called your son, but if you would consider, and his father won't even let him get through the second sentence before he just interrupts him and starts calling servants over. And he calls for the servants, and he says, bringing the best robe. Who would have the best robe? The father. He gives him his own robe. And he says, and bring, the, bring a ring and put it on his finger and, and put shoes on his feet. Oh, and by the way, you know that calf we've been fattening up for just the day? Kill that calf. We're having a party tonight because my son was dead and now he's alive. My son was gone and now he's back. And he begins to have this you know, overwhelming response of love. He's not going to make him a hired man. He's not going to wait for him to repay his debt. He says, you're my son. Fully restored. Fully accepted. No questions asked. No strings attached. You're my son. And that's the point, isn't it? The father's love is extravagant. To anyone else, this seems over the top. Even reckless. But our heavenly father is not like anyone else. 
And his love is not like any love you have ever known. And his fatherhood is not like any father you ever had. Our heavenly father does not run out of love. He doesn't run out of mercy. He doesn't run out of grace. He just keeps giving it and giving it and giving it and giving it. He receives repentant sinners as sons and daughters. No payment required. It's all a matter of grace. And so all of us should be able to exhale a little bit, having heard that. Because we can relate. And you know what? The story could end there, and we would have a nice sermon, and we would be a nice little bow to put on the end of it, and it would be a lot like the story of the sheep and a lot like the story of the coin, except there's another brother in this story. And he was not deeply moved by his father's grace toward his uh, rebellious sibling. He was disgusted. After all, he had been keeping the rules all along. He never showed his father this kind of disrespect. And now is the time when the story begins to shift. We've seen the younger son, the younger brother, disgrace his father. And now we're about to see the older brother disgrace his father. Verse 25, let's look back. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring uh, what these things could be. And he said, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry, and he was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I've been serving you, and I've never neglected a command of yours, and yet you've never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when, his son, when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you've always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead, and he has begun to live. He was lost, and he's been found. His father is throwing the biggest party the community has ever seen. This is the celebration of the year, and he is standing outside, pouting and throwing a tantrum. He's not happy with the way this thing is going down. Everyone he knows is in there. There's live music, there's dancing, there's the best food you can imagine. Everybody is there and everybody is celebrating. The only one who's not is him. And he's outside, standing on the porch like this. You can't make me go in there. I refuse to participate in this party. He's throwing his tantrum. He's making it clear that he has been following all the rules all along and he has earned the honor that is now being given to this son who doesn't deserve it. He's saying to all the world, my dad is an idiot and I have no respect for him. And so you would think in that situation, again, think about the context of the society in that time and place. 
The patriarch of the family is to be respected at all times, no matter what, there are no questions asked. This guy is a guy who runs to meet his rebellious son. And this guy is a guy who, when he is told, your older son won't come in because he's angry, he goes out and finds the older son and pleads with him. He pleads with him. He doesn't just say, come on in, come on, we want you to enjoy this, come on, we can talk about this later, don't worry. No, he pleads with him. You don't understand, your, your brother is back. I thought he was dead, now he's alive. I'm gonna celebrate this, you should celebrate this. Our family is made whole, come on. I'm begging you, please, come in, hug your brother, enjoy this experience. Please, I'm begging you, please, I'm pleading with you, come in, come in. And he's having this discussion out on the porch. But still the son refuses to honor his father's wishes. So he just stays outside and he misses the party. And interestingly, the story just ends there. It feels like such an abrupt ending to me. The guy's out on the porch refusing to come in. The end. And I, I so long to know what happens. Well, we need this resolved. Why didn't Jesus tell the rest of the story? I think he didn't tell any more story because he had made his point. And the point of a parable is to make a point. And he had made his point. The story ends abruptly. What looks like a happy ending is incomplete and now it's thrown into chaos. There's a rebellious brother who we thought was the good guy, but now he's standing outside acting like a fool. And Jesus doesn't finish the story because he has made the point. And the point is that whether you're a runaway, rebellious, throw caution to the wind, disrespectful child who's acting like a child, or whether you're the rule follower, um, you know, covenant keeper, do the right thing, never make a mess kind of a guy, you need the grace of God. And God's grace is available to you. The question is how you respond to his offer. Here's the point in shorter words. Our God is a prodigal God. He's extravagant. He loves us with a reckless love. Rule keepers who are filled with pride as well as rule breakers who are filled with shame. Same offer of grace. His arms are open wide to all of us. His extravagant love available to all of us. He offers amazing grace to all of us. He doesn't force us to worship him. He let that kid go and experience what he had to experience and then received him back. And he doesn't drag the older kid into the party either. He pleads with him to not miss the feast. Our God will not force you to worship him, but he offers you the opportunity to know him. He offers you the opportunity to have your sins washed away. He offers you unconditional love if you'll just accept it from him. And I, I couldn't help but think that this story is so timely for our society today because it feels like 
the society is broken into these two groups. There's, there's this sort of group that wants change and demands change and doesn't like the way things are and they're gonna, they're gonna break out from the, the shackles and the confines of those who have made the rules all these years and they're not gonna follow rules and they're gonna do their thing and they're gonna change the world that way. And, and they think the problem is the, the bigoted, judgmental, moral people who have all the power and all the control. And then on the other side, there's a whole group of people who are like, listen, life's not that complicated. Just do the right thing, follow the rules. Come on, we should be able to do this. And let's just, let's just hold people accountable for those kind of things. And, 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 and they're gonna stand in judgment. And it seems like our society is just broken into those two groups. I mean, and I don't care whether you're talking about in, on a school playground or the House of Congress. We're broken into these groups and pointing fingers because the adventurous, rebellious, I got to do it my way type think that it's the judgmental, bigoted people who are the problem and the progressive people are the solution. And then on the other side, those judgmental, bigoted people who are pointing their fingers, they think those people are the problem and they're the solution. And here's the point. We're all the problem and Jesus Christ is the solution. That's it. And so if we, can, if we could just begin to go, oh wait, 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 there is a father who loves me with a reckless love. All this other stuff begins to pale in comparison. I have messed up and he loves me with a reckless love. I've been here in church every Sunday and he loves me with a reckless love. He is a good God. He reaches out to us with grace no matter where he finds us. The grace of God is our source of peace and fulfillment and joy and we're not gonna find it anywhere else. So he finishes the story abruptly and you could almost hear the Pharisees and scribes gasping at the way the story ended because Jesus had the audacity to imply that the rule-keeping kid had something to be ashamed of too. And while the tax collectors and the sinners are weeping with joy at the story of the grace of God for someone who has been rebellious and come back to the Lord, the Pharisees and scribes are grumbling all the more. And ultimately, most of them never responded to the Father's invitation. They were invited to come to the feast. After all, to do that, those good folks would have to be associated with those bad folks. And they weren't about to do that. And so they missed the feast. Not because they weren't invited, but because they refused the Father's gracious invitation. And so for all of us, it's just logical to go, um, which son do I relate to the most? And for me, the answer is yes. Because <laughs> man, not only have I been both of those sons, I still am both of those sons. And I'm still utterly dependent upon the Father's incredible love and unending grace. And so... For you, if you've let your fleshly appetite drive you away from God, and you know it, he's waiting to welcome you home. And I'm telling you this, if you will just turn, scripture uses the word repent, if you will just turn from your sin and turn to God, he will run to make up the gap between you and him. He's not waiting for you to fix it. 
He's not waiting for you to clean yourself up. He's not waiting for you to make yourself right. He waits for you to simply turn and open your heart to him and he makes up the gap. Or if you've fallen into the trap of the older brother, you're so sure that you're good enough that you are offended at even the suggestion that you need grace to. If you're feeling that right now at this message, chances are you really need to hear this message. Because we church folks have to be really careful about this. It's easy to look down on people who live in open rebellion because you're so convinced that you're so much better and you're so much more deserving of God's love. And after all, you've keep all these rules. If that's how you feel, you need God's grace more desperately than anyone because the lost guy at least knows he's lost. Whichever son you are, the father is running to meet you. He's inviting you, pleading with you to come into the feast. But you have to come on his terms. And that means humbling yourself and admitting your sin and your need for him and turning from your sin and running into his open arms. See, at first glance, these two brothers seem so different. But when you look closely, you'll see that they both have the same problem. They want to do things their own way. They want to rule their own lives. They want to be their own gods rather than submitting to the loving authority of their father. And you and I are no different. Sometimes running away in rebellion, sometimes trying to prove our worth through all the good works that we do. But never forget, our God is the prodigal God. His love for us is reckless. His love for us is extravagant. His grace is is never ending. And that leaves us to answer this question for ourselves. How will you respond to a God like that? A God who's relentless in his love for you. How will you respond to a God who has proven his unending love for you by sending his own son to die on the cross? How will you respond to a God who offers you an invitation to the feast, and when you don't come in, he comes out to you and pleads with you to come. On his behalf, I plead with you today. If you've been away from God, if you've been doing your own thing, being your own king, being your own boss, whether it's in a prideful way or a a shameful way, I plead with you on behalf of the Father, come to the feast. It's just a matter of accepting his invitation. The feast is happening right now. The kingdom of God is at hand. Don't miss it. You're invited. Let's pray. God, we just want to thank you for this great story. It's just passed through the ages and it has uh, endured the test of time because we see ourselves in this story. But way more importantly, we see you. Thank you for being to us who we so desperately need you to be. You're a God whose love is relentless, reckless, overwhelming, unending. And we so desperately need you, Lord. So whether you you meet us today at a place where we feel like, boy, I've got my life together, I'm doing just fine on my own. Or whether you meet us in a place where we say, I know I've hit rock bottom and I don't know where to go from here. I pray, God, that your grace would so impact our lives that we would turn from our sin and accept your invitation.